welcome to the 28th episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. My name is Stefan and I'm part of the technical support and marketing team of Active Motif. Our special guest for this episode is Juan He from the University of Chicago. And I'm happy to talk to you now. Thank you, Juan, for joining me today. Thank you. Please let me quickly introduce you to our audience. Um, you received your PhD at MIT in 2000 and then you went on to Harvard University to do your postdoc. In 2002, you became assistant professor at the University of Chicago, and in 2008, you became associate professor there. From 2012 to 2017, you were director at the Institute for Biophysical Dynamics, and in 2014, you became John T. Wilson Distinguished Service Professor. And you're still at the University of Chicago today. Um, a question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place? and then pursuing a career in science. Well, Stefan, thank you very much for the opportunity to uh, share some thoughts and, and for this conversation. Uh, that's actually a good question. Uh, when I started in graduate school, uh, I majored in chemistry, as you know very well. Um, so, you know, I was interested in chemistry because I, I felt that, you know, allowed me to create something, right? Because, uh, you know, I was in synthetic chemistry. Um, I joined the Steve Lippert's lab, um, mainly as a synthetic chemist, but in, uh, in Lippert lab, I started to uh, learn a lot more biology and was really fascinated by uh, the subject. Uh, and, and also, um, uh, I guess the best way to say it is I was really surprised how little we know about how we as human beings function, right? You know, think of 20, 30 years back, even today, we know very little about how uh, our self work, right? We, we know very little about our, our neuron, how that functions, our brain. And I don't think anybody can say for sure we know how cancer really, uh, you know, come from or how that whole thing, the um, um, uh, underlying mechanisms, how, you know, normal cells turn into a malignant tumor. So there are just so many um, questions uh, in general, I, I think in biology that offer uh, the type of opportunity that uh, really attracted me. Uh, so I decided to pursue a uh, postdoctoral training at Harvard uh, with a focus on biochemistry and the chemical biology. Uh, and then started uh, uh, at the University of Chicago as assistant professor. I sort of mixed my lab uh, Uh, half uh, were synthetic chemistry, the other half uh, were uh, biochemistry, structural biology, and then we got into microbiology, a little bit of genetics. And about 2008, 2009, after I, uh, I was promoted with tenure, uh, I decided to go all in uh, and, and really focus on biology. So uh, then from there, you know, yeah. we, we focused on nucleic acid modifications. So, yeah, as you just mentioned, areas of your research include DNA and RNA methylation and a search in PubMed uh, results in 373 papers uh, with your name on it. And for this interview, I want to start with RNA methylation and epitranscriptomics. Um, what is uh, RNA methylation? Um, how did you get into it and uh, how does it work? Yeah, that's a very, very, another very good question. So um, I will have to answer it from two different uh, perspectives. The RNA modifications been known for over half a century in a way, start from 1950s. People realized their pseudo use, 
and other modifications on RNA, uh, cytosine methylation, right? Um, and later on, um, people found, you know, of course, abundant modifications on ribosome RNA, tRNAs, on messenger RNA, there were lots of work on editing, you know, cap modification, poly A tail. Um, but the type of modifications my lab been working on is internal modifications, uh, such as N6 methyl adenosine or M6A, that was discovered back in 1970s. So there were all these early pioneering work, um, but as we know very well that uh, you know the molecular biology and all the uh, modern tools were not available, right? Molecular biology cloning were only available in the 80s um, or 90s. Then uh, sequencing, mass spec, everything become available in the last uh, one, uh, you know, two decades. Uh, so really, uh, I think the technology advance uh, really allowed us today to look at the RNA modifications and the exact function. And from there, we can look at the genetics, biological function, uh, you know, associated with uh, disease data. Uh, and really, the technology advance, just like in other fields, right, the imaging, sequencing, mass spec, enabled breakthrough in many biological directions and RNA modifications, one of them, right? People know it's important, just like other um, biological um, um, problems, but you know, it was really enabled by the rapid advance of biology technology. Now, myself, um, I worked on DNA damage repair when I was a postdoc, and that was my background. And then when I started as assistant professor at the University of Chicago, I sort of mixed the synthetic chemistry with DNA damage repair. And the type of DNA damage, uh, I work on methylation. So the methylation damage on the DNA, and I, I specifically work on the type of repair mechanisms that leads to demethylation. Right? So I worked on that for five, six years into my own uh, independent career. Uh, and then, um, you know, I had frequent interactions with colleagues on campus uh, from biological side, and in particular, Professor Tao Pan, who's one of the world's experts on tRNA uh, biology. And of course, tRNA is heavily modified. Um, so start from 2008, uh, we sort of uh, started uh, a weekly or bi-weekly conversation, just, you know, you know, just chat, like, you know, afternoon tea or lunchtime. Sort of, you know, I was a little lost what to do next. And, and Tao, of course, uh, uh, was very generous. Uh, we just started to, uh, through ideas of RNA imaging, you know, synthetic biology part of RNA, the tRNA, um, biogenesis, et cetera, et cetera. And we eventually decided that uh, we should work on RNA modifications because it it's, feels like so important. So prevalent in biology, there's a hundred back then, 140, 150 modifications now in all RNA species. And really, um, very little was known about how RNA modification could broadly regulate gene expression, right? There were a lot of studies showing RNA modification is important for biogenesis function of particular individual tRNA, ribosome RNA, um, but it was very little uh, back then. Uh, none about uh, how a modification could affect the fate of a messenger RNA and, and could, uh, you know, come back to, to affect the, uh, the fate of the cell, for instance, right? In that sense. Uh, so in 2008, 
in 2009, we started this, this subject, and then uh, my lab got, um, uh, I guess, pretty lucky. Um, we discovered the first uh, RNA demethylase. Um, and then in 2010, uh, I wrote uh, a, a commentary uh, suggesting this is a really interesting field of biology that uh, with modern technology, study it. Just like DNA damage repair, you know, when we study DNA damage repair, we use structural biology, we use mass spectrometry, et cetera, et cetera. And then when we study DNA epigenetics, which I was also working on, you know, the same tools were available to study RNA modifications. Uh, and, and yeah, from there, I think uh, the discovery of the demethylase, later on the high throughput sequencing, availability of mass spectrometry, identification of, uh, you know, erasers, the readers, characterization of writers, and that animal models really sort of, uh, I would say, uh, prompted the field uh, moving rapidly forward. Yeah, before we come to, to enzymes like FTO, METTL complexes, um, you had two, two publications which jumped out to me, which the first one was in Nature in 2014 and one in Cell 2015, where you really described how this uh, RNA methyl, uh, methylation regulates RNA stability and also translation efficiency. Can you just describe a little bit how this works? Yeah, that, that's a that's a great question. I'm glad you <laughs> you really did homework <laughs> uh, because uh, when I gave a talk, uh, I always pointed out that I think uh, um, um, the, the recent rapid advance of, of the field and, and started to attract a lot of biologists uh, or even people from uh, biomedicine um, field coming to study RNA modification. I, I personally think there, there are two reasons behind it. And one uh, is uh, the, the work uh, you described or sort of the work that uh, uh, we and others uh, have identified the reader proteins and characterized the reader proteins. Because if you have RNA modification, right, you have sense in stored, you have sense remove it, but what, what's the biological meaning, right? What's, what does RNA modification do? And what's the, the, the pathway that leads to sort of a, a functional outcome? There has to be uh, reader proteins, just like in histone modification, or the modification has to somehow change the property of the RNA, right? Uh, so along that line, the 2014 paper done by former grad student Xiao Wang, uh, who now has his her own lab at Grow Institute at MIT, um, uh, really uh, put forward the first uh, um, pathway and the mechanism how RNA modification is recognized by the cellular uh, reader proteins, in this case, YTHDF2, uh, hundreds to thousands of methylated RNA, specifically recognized by YTHDF2. Uh, then uh, YTHDF2 sort of uh, uh, channel this uh, modified DRA to uh, cellular RNA decay machineries to accelerate their decay, right? So this is just not one RNA, there's a group of RNA, the decay can be coordinated through YTHDF2 that offered a pathway or inspired us to think that RNA modification is a mark, uh, you know, one mechanism or one function of RNA modification is a mark to group Tends to hundreds of RNAs for coordinated regulation. Right? If you can decay, if you decay one RNA, you can use a sequence or whatever. But if you decay tens to hundreds of RNAs at once, and you know we only have 20,000 mRNA species. Well, we have more isoforms, but let's say we have 20,000 genes. In, in general, 20,000 transcripts 
uh, describe BTGs, maybe more with different um, uh, and isoforms. In different biological processes, we need to group these RNAs differently. So modification provide a dynamic uh, mark, right? In one process, you group this set of RNAs. In another process, you group another set of RNAs because you have this reversible yeah. mark. Mm -hmm. So that really inspired that idea. And then uh, the 2015, uh, again, Xiao Wang and former graduate student Bo Xuan Zhao uh, teamed up and worked out this uh, translation regulation mechanism as well. Now, I also want to say that uh, uh, a work from my colleague Tao Pan published in Nature showed another way how RNA modification could impact uh, uh, biology. It's called a structural switch. So the presence of modification can destabilize secondary structure. And once you change secondary structure, you change the property of that particular RNA, that this can be a grouping effect as well. And later on, other people, Howard Chan and others, did uh, you know structural mapping of RNA indeed show that when you have a modification, right, uh, there's less structured. And I think people from Xu Bing Chan and others uh, showed that you know modification is a way to eliminate secondary structure, allow better translation. Uh, so um, that sort of I hope answered your <laughs> question. So uh, when we go back to 2011, uh, there you and your team published a paper again in uh, Nature Chemical Biology titled N6-methyladenosine in nuclear RNA is a major substrate of the obesity-associated FTO, essentially describing uh, that FTO is an eraser protein of the RNA modification, M6A. Um, how did you approach this, uh, this question at that time? And uh, what did you find about the function of FTO? Well, that, that's a that's another good question. Uh, the answer can be long. Uh, let me give you a long version. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So FTO uh, was a really interesting gene. Um, so I think in 2000, I might be wrong, in 2006 or 2005, or maybe even earlier, there were three science paper and maybe Nature Genetics. There are several groups uh, in Europe and elsewhere did uh, um um, a large scale of studies to analyze association of gene variants with obesity and di diabetes, type 2 diabetes, right? And F FTO was very high on the list. Out of three or four uh, population studies, it was like something like number one, number two, if you have a, you know, a mutation, um, you gain a few kilograms of body weight and then it's uh, associated with obesity. So obviously that become a really interesting subject, right? And then in 2007, a team in UK showed uh, it, it likely a DNA damage repair enzyme, uh, and uh, you know very much uh, homologous to the type of protein we've been working on. Uh, it's a, a enzyme yet that uses iron and oxygen to oxidatively remove methyl group. And back then, everybody was thinking about DNA damage repair because the type of proteins we work on was actually the first uh, a job proposal of mine when I was looking for a job is this type of enzyme that repair DNA damage. So we naturally got really interested, right? We decided to look uh, into why uh, DNA damage repair enzyme would uh, have such a dramatic effect, right? And um, if you look at the mouse model work, uh, it's very interesting. We did a mouse model later on. Actually, if you knock out the FTO, lots of mice die at embryo stage. Uh, then uh, the mice that survive uh, tend to be small, 
and uh, clearly have developmental defects, and, and many of them die uh, one or two months later after born. So you you know it's very rarely to see that this type of phenotype in DNA damage repair, uh, typically indicating this is doing something else, right? Uh, so start from 2007, uh, one of my former student, Ye Fu. Um, um, joined my lab and, and, and I asked him to look into this. Uh, we set up all the biological assays, biochemistry, uh, trying to figure out what's really going on. And then a postdoc joined the lab, uh, Gui Fang Jia, uh, started to team up with Ye looking into this. Uh, very soon we realized the FTO works much better than single-stranded uh, DNA than double-stranded DNA. So we actually wrote a FAPS letter um, I think 2009 or 2010, suggesting this could be RNA demodification um, um, enzyme because it works on better than single stranded. Um, at the time, um, uh, I remember, I think in 2010, um, we were in a group meeting and I was predicting that uh, this modification, uh, you know, look at the FTO structure. Was thinking maybe maybe it works on modification at the end uh, of, of nucleic acid. So I asked the Guifang to look more carefully into this. And back then, as I just said, the technology advancement played a major role in this because we have mass spectrometry. Uh, because we have mass spectrometry, we can sensitively detect the change of modifications. So when we treated FTO with nucleic acid substrates, one peak was completely gone, and that peak is M6A. On RNA, so that led us to say, "Haha!" If you look at the literature, M6A is, is this mysteric, most abundant internal modification of messenger RNA, and and FTO works is so much better than on M6A uh, at the end of the nucleic acid in the middle uh, than other modifications, and that led to the first publication. So we look at the poly A held RNA and and realized it really works on M6A. Um, Later work from many groups, including mine, showed that M6A as a framework is the best substrate. It can be at the uh, cap, uh, you know, at the end, internally, or lots of uh, um, uh, promiscuity in, in this. FTO works on uh, M6A, um, different RNA substrates. In cancer, um, uh, leukemia and other cancer, melanoma, we're pretty sure it works on messenger RNA. And I'm actually, I was busy last week, <laughs> I'm writing a paper uh, to really describe the physiological substrate. So during early development, you have this FTO knockout mice, um, uh, lots of those died uh, embryo stage. Why? Which RNA is a real substrate? I think we, we found that. It's an internal M6A uh, group of RNA. So we're, we're excited to submit it and then get it out. Will it be on bioarchives first? Uh, we will see. <laughs> okay, depends I see. On, it depends on my 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 student postdoc. I'm actually very flexible, but my my student postdoc tend to me be more conservative. I see. I see. Yeah, we are looking forward to 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 reading that. Uh, then you later on you also identified another erase of RNA modification, namely ALK BH5. Um, was this uh, discovered in a similar way? And what does it do? Well, ALK BH5 was a Well, once you found FTO, uh, it has uh, eight other human homologs. <laughs> <laughs> so you just go through the human homologs, and then you very quickly find RPG5. 
uh, it really impacts um, uh, spermatogenesis, uh, and uh, it's also play quite important roles in, in immunology and cancer biology these days. Uh, and uh, a few years ago, people, a few people, we always think it's important. A few people say it's not important. Uh, it is actually a very important uh, enzyme. Uh, it's just another example, but FTO and RQBG5 are, are different in, in ways that RQBG5 works on messenger RNA-M6A, but it also works on other RNA-M6A. FTO works on messenger RNA-M6A in cancer cells, in other primary tissue and early development stem cells, it works on other RNA substrates, uh, pre predominantly, we believe, but it also still works on M6A internally. Okay. Then another complex in the RNA methylation field has come into focus lately, which is METTL314. Um, you and your team also worked on identifying this complex and its cofactor WTAP in 2014. Um, how does this complex act on the RNA? Right, that, that, that's a very good question. Um, I, I forgot to mention that the demethylase, so far we have two demethylases found. Uh, we just found the third one. We submitted for publication already. <laughs> and then I think that there's also a fourth one, okay. maybe even a fifth one. And they all, they all work differently, surprisingly. So it's not just two RNA demethylases. Wait, we know for sure that's the third one. Um, and then fourth one, the fifth one, we, we're, we're also pretty confident. Um, coming back to writer complex, right? The uh, METTL3 has been known since uh, I think the 90s. Um, so people know um, back then, METTL3 is one protein people know that responsible for installing M6A uh, to the internal uh, mRNA. Um, here comes the second part that I think really draw, uh, drove the development of the field is that when people make knockout mice of these writer complexes, uh, they're embryonically lethal. It turns out if you get rid of uh, RNA methyltransferase, which is probably the most important uh, player, because you know this is responsible to install the RNA methylation to messenger RNA, right? Um, and most of the cells stuck at the uh, embryo stage, right? Um, the importance um, uh, suggests it's probably regulated in a, a complicated way. And as uh, you just said, uh, it's actually a thousand KD complex. The core is METTL3 with METTL14 with WTAP. WTAP may or may not be part of it in some biological processes. Even METTL3, 14, do they really form complexes in most of RNA methylation? We're not sure, but they, they are probably responsible for most of the messenger RNA methylation um, and perhaps methylation of some other RNAs as well. Now, um, this complex uh, has many other um, uh, factors attached to it. And we believe they, these factors are responsible for, for a specificity, you know, which transcript is methylated, where, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a very complicated system. And to us, it's still a black box, right? Uh, we had the science paper we published this year. We show that this METTL3 also install a chromosome-associated RNA methylation that regulates transcription. So instead of post-transcriptional regulation of messenger RNA, the same complex 
or maybe a different version of the complex also regulates transcription. So it has so many roles, um, and it, it, it makes sense. It's very complicated, and then we know very little uh, about this complex. Uh, I want to point it out that this is a target for the current uh, uh, biotech. All right? um, there's Accent, Therapeutics, Storm, Gotham, and several other um, biotechs started uh, to target the writer complex because you know this one gives the most dramatic phenotype, and and thus uh, if we have a therapy uh, targeting METTL3 or the whole complex, uh, we expect to see the most dramatic uh, outcome. And which uh, diseases uh, does this complex play a role? Well, because METTL3 is so important in almost every aspect of uh, developmental biology. Uh, the obvious uh, choice is, is, is cancer, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you don't go with diabetes or cardiovascular or heart disease. Uh, um, you know, um, what if the side effect can be uh, a bit too big, right? But for cancer, particularly malignant cancer, uh, this presents as a, a pretty uh, feasible uh, target. Um, you also mentioned uh, earlier in this interview that uh, the YTH domains and the YTHDC1 and YTHDF1 um, proteins. And you also published a paper uh, to this uh, protein in Nature 2018, where you uh, looked at the memory um, effects of this protein. How does that work then? Right. Um, so uh, neurons, I think uh, neuronal transcripts turn to enrich uh, M6A. Um, there... Uh, unlike uh, early development, well, first of all, to develop neurons, M6A is critical. Uh, it's a it's a you know, it's a fundamental developmental biology. But if you look at the mature neurons, often they're perturbed uh, through translation-related pathways. Right? And M6A play a quite important role in that regard. And lots of unpublished data from my lab, I'm sure from other labs, suggesting neurodegenerative diseases. Many of those involve uh, misregulated M6A pathways. Uh, that uh, contributes to misregulated translation. Um, specifically to this YTHDF1 story, uh, we were trying to understand how does YTHDF1 affect translation because back then we were puzzled that in some cell lines, we see a clear effect of YTHDF1 in promoting translation. In some other cell lines, it was not obvious. So we use the neuronal system because we realize when we knock out YTHDF1, uh, these mice are fine, developmentally perfectly fine. Uh, however, uh, they have uh, learning and memory defects, right? Um, so we looked into this. Uh, we spent actually two, three years uh, on this until we figured this out. Well, we, I mean, with our collaborators, neurobiologists, uh, uh, Tao Zhou and Junsong, Xiaoxi, Zhuang, and others. Uh, it's really a, a collective efforts that inspired each other because it was a black box until one day we realized the stimulation induced. Uh, so when you have a YTHDF1 sits there, it doesn't do much in hippocampus neuron, but when you have a stimulation, it somehow gets turned on, right? Uh, we, we recently worked out how this process works over in the process of uh, preparing a manuscript. Now that discovery had many implications. It suggested that uh, M6A is 
a mark essential for early development. It's also a mark uh, important for stimulation or stress or signaling induced cellular response. And YTEDF1 or other proteins may play critical roles there, right? And that implication um, led us to propose in immunology, you know, in other cases when there's a signaling stimulation, uh, RNA methylation can play critical roles. And, and you probably saw the work we, we published on tumor immunology in 2019 on YTHDF1. Um, and, and there uh, with former co-workers, uh, Michelle and, and Dali with, and the collaborators here, uh, Ralph Wassenbaum and others, uh, we show that uh, uh, the M6A play very important roles in tumor immunology, right? Uh, and is a important factor in tumor immunotherapy uh, through this YTHDF1 dependent uh, pathway. And I may add that uh, we and Michelle have lots of unpublished data really show the importance of M6A in, in tumor immunology, uh, immunity, and, and, and immunotherapy. And you will hopefully hopefully write this together very soon. Um, another question that now occurred to me is when it uh, yeah we talk about M6A in the in the context of learning and memory and the time scale on which it acts must be very very fast right I mean if you create a memory it must be very fast acting or is it am I wrong in this uh, in this aspect right that's a very good question so essentially when you have a learning and a memory or if you have other say immunology or many other pathways is a kinase right typically it's a kinase induced you have a calcium uh, kinase etc cetera, et cetera. so yeah we worked out that it's a kinase induced uh, process that uh, leads to phosphorylation of RNA binding proteins and that RNA binding proteins uh, were uh, gain or lose RNA binding affinity uh, then led to sort of uh, overall state change, right? So when we talk about learning and memory in that particular case, uh, in neurons, uh, we'll talk about uh, localized translation. You have MRA uh, somehow close to the synapse sites. Um, Stimulation signaling led to a phosphorylation change and a change of uh, RNA binding by RNA binding proteins and that impacts translation, uh, which eventually leads to learning and memory. So since uh, the title of this show is Epigenetics Podcast, um, I obviously want to finish with uh, the paper that came out last year where you also were part of a team um, that published a paper in Nature titled Histone H3 Trimethylation at Lysine 36 Guides M6A RNA Modification Code Transcriptionally Linking the RNA Methylation to Histone Post-Translational Modifications. Um, can you quickly describe how yeah, Histone Post-Translational Modifications are linked to this RNA Methylation uh, space? Yeah, very, very, very nice question. Uh, so uh, there were two ways to look approach this. Uh, one way was described in that Nature paper, in which uh, uh, if you look at the, the uh, distribution profile of M6A on transcripts, and then you ask what kind of genomic features that uh, overlay best with uh, this generic uh, M6A distribution, it's K36 trimethyl uh, gene body, right? And then you, you're like, okay, you know, there must be some connection, 
Another way to connect this is uh, we have a Nature Genetics paper coming out where we did a QTL study. We sequenced the 60, 70 human lymphocyte uh, cells, and then we look at the variants and the association with M6A. And again, the top one come out is uh, K36 trimethyl, right? Uh, so there, there are two dynamic genetic ways all reach uh, the same conclusion that uh, uh, K36 trimethyl uh, is a mark that uh, import that is important for uh, M6A installation. Uh, so the way it works is actually uh, the um, METTO14, the other critical part of the methyl transfers complex, uh, can actually get uh, recruited uh, to the K36 trimethyl site. Right, and that brings uh, the methyl transferase complex uh, to gene bodies and, and to three uh, prime UTRs where there's a lot of K36 trimethyl. Right now, uh, that explains one feature of M6A distribution, um, but it also leaves a lot of questions. Uh, for instance, it probably explains 50% of RNA methylation distribution, but not the other 50%, right? <laughs> um, we still don't know uh, why um, um, methylation occurs to certain transcripts, but not the other, right? Uh, we still don't know why methylation occurs to 5' UTR, right? Uh, because there, we don't really see a predominant K36 trimethyl, um, and we don't know why a long axons are, are, are methylated but not short axons um, but it does it does uh, um, really answer one question so why m6a is distributed through coding regimes to 3 prime utrs right um, through this uh, histone um, connection uh, I, I will say that you, in the next several years you'll see a lot more paper research coming out connecting rna methylation with histone modifications they're really intervened together uh, given that we now understand um, RNA methylation tunes transcription, uh, not only through um, affecting MRA of uh, histone modifiers, uh, but also uh, transcription events uh, through affecting enhancer, promoter, repeat RNAs. So to finish up this interview, I have two more general questions. The first one being, uh, did you at one point of your career face the situation uh, that you have reached a dead end? or did not know how to proceed to unravel a question uh, that you um, ask yourself? I mean, you pointed out already that you had this um, discussions over lunch uh, with your colleague uh, in the Institute. Was this uh, such a situation? Uh, yeah, it, yes. I think uh, um, since I started uh, in 2002, I uh, switched the research directions multiple times. I started uh, with the catalysis, synthetic chemistry, I worked on structural biology. I spent five, six, seven years really working on microbiology on pathogens, uh, Staphylococcus aureus, Pseudomonas, aeruginosa. Um, um, I, I, looking back, I think that the key was, uh, you know, I love all these subjects, but uh, I was also trying to look for a subject that uh, I have ownership myself uh, instead of uh, just uh, following people's footsteps, uh, not really. I think uh, some of the work, uh, I, I think we were pretty original, but still I was trying to say if there's a field I can make an impact, um, uh, you know, I really put my name on. Uh, so um, yes, at, 
uh, in 2008, uh, you know, I was tenured and I supposed to do something else. Um, so uh, I was a little, uh, I, I think I was going to work on DNA epigenetics. That was pretty sure. Uh, but I was a little unsure, uh, uh, would that be it? Or there are other things I could work on. Uh, so I was uh, really, uh, I, you know, I, I'm really glad I, I picked up uh, RNA modification. And in fact, in 2008, I completely, or 2009, completely closed my my catalysis synthetic chemistry lab and, and focused on chemical biology. That was a good decision yeah. for me. There are people outstanding in catalysis they should pursue. Everybody has their own sort of right expertise and their own sort of um, um, programs to develop. So in the last 35 minutes, we have taken a journey through the path you took through um, the world of epitranscriptomics, RNA modifications. Uh, we didn't touch on, on the DNA methylation um, side and all your other work, but um, can you maybe give a short summary about um, this part of your work and the most important findings or something that we still might have missed in this um, interview? Um, I think they, 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 they were maybe two discoveries I'm pretty proud of. One was really a technology uh, effort. So my lab has got really into genomic uh, technologies in the last 10 years. Uh, so on DA modifications, uh, we were one of the, I would say, front runners in terms of developing genomic tools to map RNA modifications. Uh, on that front, I think we developed uh, perhaps the most robust uh, and economic and uh, clinically feasible way uh, to map our uh, DNA modifications that allow us for clinical diagnosis prognosis. It's very practical. It has been going extremely well. Uh, in the next uh, several years, uh, will be really applied to uh, um, help patients. So uh, I'm very proud of that. Um, we, we just saw some Uh, unbelievable results coming out. It, it's really a 10-year effort, but we're close to, uh, I think we're close to the, the real uh, clinical application. Another uh, thing I'm proud of uh, is uh, uh, a look at the adenosine methylation in DNA in eukaryotes. There's a lot of uh, controversy, confusion, uh, etc. So uh, in eukaryotes, people know cytosine is methylated. Um, but people also know adenosine is methylated. There's very few study in the past. Uh, so former grad student Ye Fu teamed up with a postdoc showed in low eukaryotes, uh, the 6MA exists and play important roles in, in green algae and later on tetrahymenon. Uh, the question has always been in mammals, what's going on, right? And there, uh, there's a lot of efforts and controversy, confusion going on. And um, I think it still uh, require uh, uh, development. We have been very careful uh, in mammals. Uh, we had a lot of results we never published, um, but uh, I'm very confident our recent rework showed that in mammals, mitochondrial DNA are heavily methylated. Uh, in average, every mitochondrial genome, which is about 16 KB uh, base pair, Uh, at least four or more adenosine methylation, and then they're there to suppress mitochondrial activity. Uh, that part, uh, I think, is a very original discovery made by former postdoc. 
and um, my my guess in the next five ten years, uh, people will really follow and and reveal new biology there. Maybe we can have uh, uh, another call in <laughs> in a few years to just uh, touch on your other work uh, because it's uh, a lot of papers I've seen also on, on in this area. So thank you, Shuan, for your time and being on the show. Thank you, Stefan. Thank you. This was the 28th episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Please rate, review and subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. We are happy to receive your feedback on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn. We will read all your reviews and comments and give you a shout out on a future episode. If you have any further questions, you can also reach me at podcast.activemotif.com. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog, Motivations, at activemotif.com slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.